0: Matthew 25, verse 1 At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So the questions that I want to ask and answer are, why did Jesus tell this parable? What's the context? And what is he trying to to teach us? So in order to find the context of this parable, it's actually in the first three verses of the previous chapter. In Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus has been uh, at the, the temple. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, the temple they were in was Herod's temple. And it was uh, um, just a, a modern, not modern, it was a marvel of the day. It was just glorious and splendid. And you could see it from afar off. And it was, it was uh, you, it, shining on the hill. And it was just a, 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 an amazing thing to see. And they were rightfully proud of it. And so they're asking Jesus about it. Um, He says, Do you see all these things? He asked, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus spends the rest of chapter 24 answering that question, telling them the sign of his coming and the sign of the end of the age, and then warning them to be ready because they'll not know the exact time that he's coming. This always reminds me of when my brother and I were young. I was probably 11 or 12, and my brother's three years younger than I than I am. And um, our parents would go and buy groceries, and they'd leave us home alone. And my dad's last words to us as he would walk out the door, um, and forgive me if you... Uh, if you think you shouldn't say the word butt from the pulpit, but uh, he said, no, I, don't want any, I don't want y'all playing any grab butt while I'm gone. Now, that was his word for wrestling. You know, this was back in the day when Mr. Wrestling Number Two and all that was popular, and, and uh, we watched, yeah, we watched all that. And so, as soon as we could, we had a gravel driveway, and so as soon as we could hear uh, their car leave the gravel, what do you think we did? <laughs> we started wrestling. And we would throw things all over the place and have the house in total disarray until we heard the tires on the gravel again. Well, when we heard the tires on the gravel again, we knew we had about three minutes before he walked in for us to get everything straightened back up. And then just sit there and be watching TV like the good little boys that we were. Because we didn't know exactly when he was coming home, but we had a little bit of a clue, a little bit of forewarning. Uh, And Jesus is telling his disciples uh, to be ready... To be watchful because you're not going to know the exact time uh, of my coming. Um, Now, in verse 1 of chapter 25, Jesus says, at that time. And so this is referring to the time of his coming and the time of the end of the age, the answer to the question. And Jesus is about to illustrate with this story what he means by being ready for his anticipated but surprised return. Now, this story didn't require explanation to the disciples or anybody else that was listening because this was their culture and they understood all of the things that were part of the story, all of the the customs and uh, all the things that went into a Jewish wedding. Now, we're 21st century Gentiles, and so some of this stuff is not exactly familiar to us. Now, one of the things as you read through the New Testament, in fact, as you read through all of Scripture, you see Uh, a picture that is uh, routinely painted uh, of how a marriage is illustrative of the relationship between God and his people and in the New Testament between Christ and his church. And so I'm going to explain to you just a little bit about the traditions of a Jewish wedding. And I want you to listen carefully, especially those of you who grew up in church and and you've heard bits and pieces of things and a lot of Jesus' parables have to do with with uh, weddings, a lot of the imagery that Paul talks about with the church has to do with a marriage and brides and and weddings. And so I want you to listen carefully. Uh, so the the elements of a Jewish wedding, the first thing, and i'm not I'm not Hebrew and don't speak Hebrew, so I'm going to give you my uh, Georgia pronunciation of these Jewish words. Uh, the first thing is a Shadukan, which means promise. And so this is the first step in the marriage process. This is the selection of the bride. Typically, the father of the groom selected the bride and sent a trusted servant to negotiate with her father. Now, one of the things, and this is a complete aside, that you ought to know about the Jewish tradition in this, in these arranged marriages, is that the woman actually had a say. In most cultures where arranged marriages took place, the woman has zero say. She's a piece of property bought and sold. But um, in the Jewish tradition, that's not so. The bride had veto power. If she absolutely did not like the groom, then she could tell her father, I do not like this man. I do not want to marry him, and that'd be it. And so the father would say, thank you very much, and he would continue to look. Uh, but it very much, though, was the father who selected the prospective groom Um, uh, or 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 selected the prospective bride for his his son. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We, too, were selected as a bride for Christ. Uh, It says here plainly in Ephesians 1 that we were chosen in him, chosen in Christ, uh, before the foundation of the world. The second part of the Jewish uh, marriage is the ketubah, which means written. This is the actual contract. They actually had a written contract that both parties signed. And the ketubah includes the provisions and conditions of the proposed marriage. It also contains the bride price the rights of the bride, and the promises of the groom. This often included that if the groom did not treat the bride uh, uh, properly or care for her, that he would answer to her father for breaking the contract. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, You are not your own, for you have been bought for a price. Mikvah, which is baptism, It, it, it is a ritual immersion, Uh, Baptisms did not start with Christians. It actually started with Jews. Uh, They would walk into a mikveh bath, which would symbolize a a, a spiritual cleansing. Well, the bride and the groom separately would would, uh, undergo a a baptism to prepare for their betrothal or or engagement. Um, This baptism was prior to actually entering into the formal betrothal period and was symbolic. Matthew 3.13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have the need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. But Jesus answering said to him, Allowed at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Are you tracking with me? You're seeing the, the, the parallels in the Jewish um, uh, marriage and the marriage between Christ and the church. Uh, the next part is the aruzin, which is the actual engagement or betrothal. Uh, it means sanctification or set apart. After the couple had undergone an individual baptism to consecrate themselves separately, they would appear together under a, a, a canopy called the huppa. And in public, they would express their intention of becoming engaged. While under the canopy, the couple participated in a ceremony in which some items of value were exchanged. They would exchange rings often, and there would be a singular cup of wine that they would each drink from uh, to seal the vows. Matthew 26, verse um, 27 says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. How many of you have ever recognized that what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper was actually a betrothal? He was... Uh, creating an engagement between himself and his bride the church and he took one of the cups uh, from the Passover meal which we to this day uh, memorialize in the Lord's Supper the same cup which generally is believed to be the third cup there were four cups of wine that were poured during the the Passover meal and the third cup was the, the cup of re- redemption of the cup of blessing and, and Jesus took this and he He gave it new meaning and said that this this symbolizes my blood. Not the blood of the Passover lamb back in Egypt, but my blood, the blood of the Passover lamb. It's a new covenant. And I drink from this today, and I won't drink from it again until I drink it with you in my Father's house. We'll come back to that again in a minute. So it was actually a betrothal. Um, Now, a couple of things you should know. After the betrothal ceremony, the couple was considered to to be engaged, and generally this period would last between one and two years, however long it took the the young groom to go and prepare a place for his bride. Uh, During this time, the couple was considered married, yet they did not have sexual relations, and they continued to live separately until the end of the betrothal period. Uh, the Jewish understanding of, of an engagement is much stronger than our understanding. Uh, in the West, our understanding of an engagement is okay. We we're going to get married. We're announcing everybody. We're going to get married, and we're we're going through the steps in the process. But if in that process we change our mind, no divorce is required. It's simply okay. I've changed my mind. I'm not getting married. Well, a Jewish engagement requires a divorce. Uh, you've already signed. Uh, a, a covenant with one another. You've already sealed it with uh, with the, the cup and the exchanging of rings, and it's unbreakable without a divorce. Now, one thing you should know in a divorce is that in this instance, the 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 bride or the wife did not have a say. It was only the groom who could initiate and actually carry out uh, a divorce. Now, keep in mind the imagery. Uh, as, as believers, as the church, we are betrothed to our bridegroom, Christ. Uh, the marriage has not yet been consummated in that we're not with him. Uh, we're waiting on him to come and to return. But the, the union, nevertheless, is unbreakable. Only the groom can break it. But Jesus himself promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And no man can pluck you out of my hand and so he's already promised that he's not going to divorce us. and so this union that we have is uh, unbreakable. Um, the Matan, which is the bridal gift, uh, the groom would give his wife a gift, which is a pledge of his love for her. Its purpose was to be a reminder to his bride during their days of separation of his love for her, that he was thinking of her, and that he would return to receive her as his wife. We've been given a gift too. Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving, but he wasn't going to leave them as orphans. What was he going to do that when he left? His father would send the Holy Spirit and that that spirit would seal us until the day of redemption or the day of his coming. Uh, That gift is a reminder to us constantly that we are his and that he is thinking of us and that he has not uh, abandoned us. Now consecrated, the bride was to remain faithful and ever watchful for her groom to come, even in the midnight hour. The bride was uh, also to keep herself busy in preparation for the wedding day. Specifically, wedding garments were to be sewn and prepared. From the moment of our conversion until either we die or Jesus comes back, this is referred to as our, our period of sanctification, where we are working through. Uh, our salvation, where the Holy Spirit is helping us to prepare ourselves, uh, at least that's what's supposed to be happening, to prepare ourselves for our meeting with our bridegroom, for the, for the coming together, for the actual uh, marriage ceremony. Um, and that's what the, the bride uh, was to be doing. During the betrothal period, the groom's responsibility was to focus on preparing a new dwelling place for his bride and future family. Now, in biblical times, this was often done by adding a room to the groom's father's house. And so would he, they would actually just expand the house. They had multiple generations living in the same home. And, and uh, when uh, the son is getting married, then they would add a room onto the father's house. This is, this is significant uh, when you look at the translations of uh, Jesus. Uh, and I'll read, I'll read this text here in uh, just a minute. Uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about mansions and uh, we have a mansion in heaven, but actually the correct, uh, translation of that is room. We have a room in heaven and my father's house are many rooms. That's because the bridegroom, Jesus went back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. He added onto the house, a place for his bride. John 14:1 says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. Now, the the last part is the nesuin, which means to carry. This marks the actual beginning of the marriage ceremony. Now, the, the way they did this is kind of neat and would, would put uh, wedding coordinators out of business in our day uh, because, remember, the engagement period, everybody understood it was going to be between one and two years, uh, but, but the bride was always kept in the dark as to the exact moment. It was supposed to be a big surprise. And usually what would happen, and everybody in the whole community participated in this. I mean, it was a big deal. Weddings were huge social events. But when it was ready, the groom didn't determine when it was ready. The father of the groom determined when the groom had made all the necessary preparations. And when the father of the groom believed that his son was ready and had adequately prepared for his bride, then he would tell his son, Go get your bride. Any of this sound familiar? And so uh, the groom then, with his wedding party, and they would oftentimes do it in the middle of the night. Would actually sneak into the bride's home and, would, like a thief in the night, would sneak into the bride's home and would kidnap her. They would grab her up and would carry her away in a procession. And the 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 um, bridesmaids, the the bride's wedding party. Now they they knew when the time was close. And so they would all make preparations and they would be ready in a moment's notice because they didn't know the exact time but they would have torches or lamps ready so that they could have a parade and then the kidnapped bride would be carried through town uh, in in a lighted procession back to the groom's house but when the bridesmaids knew that the time was ready for them to light their lamps and prepare to, to, to light the procession was that the groom's wedding party would sound the shofar, the trumpet. Any of this sound familiar? The trumpet of the Lord shall sound. He would, they would announce the arrival of the bridegroom with a trumpet blast. And then everybody would know the bridegroom is here. And then they would sneak into the bride's house, steal her away. And carry her off in this procession. Matthew 24, 31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of the sky to the other. So that's the Jewish wedding. Um, Verse 13 in chapter 25. Back to our parable. Is the point of application. This is the truth that Jesus was trying to convey. Namely... That those who will go into the kingdom are those who have prepared. Going back to uh, verse 13, it says, Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or hour. That's the whole point of the parable. You don't know when he's coming. But it's going to be like this. It's going to be like the weddings that you're all used to and you've all participated in. Remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience. So that's why I've explained a Jewish wedding to you, so you can understand the same thing that Jesus' audience understood. So now that begs the question, what does it mean to prepare for Jesus' coming? Preparation is more than what we probably think it is. It starts with a proper reckoning of the true cost of what you're being asked to commit to. When when a, a, a young man's father would select a, a bride for his son and the two fathers would negotiate the terms and then they would bring the young people together to meet and the bride had the, the right of refusal, she could say, no, I don't want to marry this guy. But there were lots of things considered. Uh, namely, the prominence of the, of the man was considered and okay, what kind of name does your family have? Are you going to be able to provide for my daughter? Uh, or are you, all are you going to be a burden on me? Uh, all of those sorts of things. So there was lots to, to, to sit down and to consider. Um, and then the bride would consider the cost of what it meant to commit to this particular groom. Luke 14, 25 says large crowds were traveling with Jesus. You know, Jesus was extremely popular. I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but, if, but if, if I'm an itinerant preacher and I'm going around and whenever I go someplace, I interrupt funerals because the dead person gets up. Or I go someplace and I, I interrupt the, the, the uh, religious goings on that are happening because a man who's been crippled for 40 years gets up and walks home. It kind of makes you popular. Uh, and when you're out preaching and people are hungry and their disciples are like, Man, we got to feed these people. We should send them away. And, and Jesus is like, No, nah, you feed them. How are we going to feed them? Well, there's this little kid here who's got a lunch pail. And so Jesus feeds, and it says 5,000 men. Women and children weren't counted. So if you take 5,000 men, most of those men would have been married. So 10,000 adults. And most of those adults would have had kids. So let's figure two kids per each. So now you're talking 20,000 people that Jesus fed with a lunch pail. That makes a guy popular. So Jesus was very popular to begin with. And so this huge crowd, or or wherever Jesus would go, there would be huge crowds. And at this particular instance, Jesus addresses this huge crowd. He turns to them and he says, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, now, that kind of puts a damper on the excitement, don't you think? So all these people are following Jesus, wanting to see what he's going to do next, wanting to see if he's going to raise their dead relative from the, from the dead, wanting to see if he's going to give them a free lunch. And now he's saying, I've got to hate my mom and dad to follow you. I've got to, I've got to hate my own life to follow you. That requires explanation, um, which I don't have time to get into today. But the the point of it is that my love for him is so great that any other love looks like hate in comparison. So don't get hung up on the words. Uh, but this this was hard for the for, for them to accept. Then he goes on in verse 27. If any and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Hard stuff. That's considering the cost. So if, if you're considering following Jesus, you need to consider what the actual proposal is. The presentation of the gospel When we're sharing Christ with people, it should include this. Jesus demands all of you. He requires to be your most important relationship, your greatest friend, your highest urgency. Jesus cannot be one among many or even first among equals. He must have first place. He must be supreme. And that should be the presentation of the gospel. In uh, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after, me, come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his, his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Here's what you need to understand about the proposal, the betrothal proposal between the bridegroom Christ and you uh, as uh, a part of his church. The invitation to follow Jesus is real and indiscriminate. There's lots of debate uh, among Christians uh, about this and and, and frankly I, I don't uh, know why that there is. Uh, it, it, the scripture is very clear for God so loved the world, and in the Greek, it's the cosmos, which is the whole thing. That He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the proposal. That's the that's the invitation. It's real and it's indiscriminate. Whosoever will, anyone who will respond to the invitation. Two. Those who truly receive what He is offering, however, are those who have understood what is being asked of them, who have considered the cost. And are truly willing to forfeit it all just to be with Him. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means that you're willing to forfeit everything and everybody else. Period. No exceptions. Just you and Jesus. And if that's what it comes down to, just you and Jesus, that's okay. Because ultimately what's most important to you is you want to be with Him. Not what he can do for you, not what he can give you, not what he offers you, but himself. Are you willing to just simply be with Jesus? They do it willingly because they recognize, as I said last time I was here, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Now somehow we have equated getting ready uh, or accepting this patrol with one of two extremes on the one hand you have just recite this prayer and 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 you'll be saved and there's no accompanying change of heart there's no sitting down and reckoning uh, 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 of actually considering the cost all right if i'm going to sign up with this If I'm going to cast my lot with with, uh, this man Jesus, this is what it means, and this is what it will cost me. This is what it might cost me, and am I willing to pay that cost to be with him? There is an actual consideration of the proposal, but that requires that the proposal is actually complete. We do a disservice to people when we don't give them the full and complete proposal this is this is what it means to follow Jesus you 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 hate your own life in order to and again don't get hung up on the word hate but you, you're willing to lose your own life in order to simply be with Jesus. Then on the other hand, on the other side, you have the other extreme, which is being legalistic and refraining from bad stuff and dutifully doing good stuff in order to somehow merit something. Both of these are equally wrong. Both of these are equally heretical and apostate. And both of these send people to hell because it's not an actual genuine presentation and consideration of the gospel, which is Christ's proposal to you. In scripture, you see a reasoned presentation of the gospel and a call to consider the costs and an invitation to respond by putting all of your hope of being right with God in Jesus. Lastly, even those who have rightly reasoned and considered the costs can be lulled into a sleepy or indifferent state i don't know if you've lived long enough to know this but life can be just downright hard sometimes and it can it can weigh you down and you know and we don't see jesus and we have an enemy who actively is trying to take our spiritual eyes off of jesus and that's real easy to do when our physical eyes can't see him, and the weight of the world falls on top of us and we forget whose we are we forget the promise that's been made to us. We forget that we've been betrothed to him. And he swore an oath by his own blood. And he went back to his father's house to prepare a place for us. And he promised to come back and get us. And while we don't know the exact date or hour, there is there is a parameter on this uh, engagement period. In that day it was one to two years. In our day, it'll be in your lifetime. You realize that, don't you? Seeing Jesus will be in your lifetime because either Jesus will break the clouds and we'll all see him or you'll die and you'll see him because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. By the way, I heard uh, somebody in the last week or two uh, explain uh, or or talk about death and and said it in a way that I hadn't actually uh, thought about before. Um, I mean, I've... Have a biblical understanding of death, and death for a Christian is totally different than death for somebody else. One, to be absent with the body, is to be present with the Lord. Two, we are instantly ushered into His presence when we die. There's never, there's never a loss of anything. We go from being here uh, and closing our eyes in death to being there with Him. There's no, there's no lull, there's no gap, there's no uh, intervening uh, period. But, but He talked about how, how. Just, just explaining that in, in a way better than I had thought about before, how, how death for the believer is just, just totally different and changed. And not something to be dreaded, but actually something to uh, look forward to and that you are with him. Jesus is coming. Either you're dying and you're going to see him, or he's coming to get you. Either way, are you ready? As somebody who is not a believer, um, have you ever heard the, the the actual proposal that's offered to you and sat down and considered it and accepted it and enter into a relationship with him? Or maybe you are an actual believer and you have a relationship with Christ, but you've been lulled to sleep. You've forgotten your first love. You're thinking he's long and coming and so he's not coming and I've been... Abandoned, and the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Either way, consider the costs, consider the proposal, consider who is making it, and then respond.